You're listening to Instructive's Insane Instruction Show. I am Ferry V. I create happy and safe users for over two decades. This is a listen and learn podcast to help your firm keep on the right side of the law by creating better information for use. How do you know you can trust what I say? I've worked in product development and compliance for a few decades and I've built up three companies and my blog attracts over 10,000 visitors a month. None of this is as important as keeping your company and your users safe. They're happy, their partners are happy and of course I am happy for them. Hi there and welcome to the show. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how to CE mark a product. Products can include toys, machinery, personal protective equipment, pressure equipment, medical devices, etc. As we as a company specialize in creating user instructions for medical devices, electrical equipment, machinery, most of our clients are involved in the certification process of their products. With the user instructions that we create, We help provide clear information on how to use a product which is necessary for using a product safely, efficiently and effectively. The user manual plays an important role in the certification process. One of the purposes of the manual is to warn the user against certain product risks. Product safety legislation in most cases also gives requirements on the contents of a user manual. What should be in the manual also depends on the product group. The requirements on the user manual for machinery differ from those of a toy, personal protective equipment, measuring device, construction product or medical device. As I think it's useful for companies selling products on the European market to have more insight in the CE marking process, we will talk about it in this podcast episode. Together with my guest, I hope to provide practical tips on how to go through the CE marking process and self-certify your product. In this podcast, we will discuss what does CE marking stand for on products? When do you need a CE mark for your product? The process of CE marking in general and the six steps to CE marking. How you can get or obtain a CE mark for your product. How to identify if your product falls under the scope of CE marking. What are CE marking requirements? How to check if a CE mark is valid. My guest for today is Paul Hogekamp. He's one of the most well-known experts in the field of CE marking and machinery safety. He is owner of Messit, with which Paul advises on CE marking and product safety. He developed several CE marking related tools, is author of several books on machinery safety and risk assessment, is trainer at the Dutch Standardization Institute and chairman of several standardization committees, such as the Dutch Machinery Committee. Welcome, Paul. Okay, welcome, Harry. That's such an impressive list. Every time I speak to you, new things are going on. What committees are you currently involved in as a chairman or a member? The current committee is on the performance level of SIL, which is known as the 13849 and the 6261 committee, as also the risk assessment and ergonomics as a member. 
Let's talk about a CE marking in general first. C can you explain us what is the CE mark? Well, a CE mark is nothing more or nothing less, let's say, than the manufacturer puts a label on it and says this machine complies with the product legislation or the applicable product legislation. And th that is European product leg legislation. So when you see a CE mark, you know for sure that the manufacturer of a product uh, did everything to comply with the European directives and the Euro and the requirements in those directives. Is that correct? Well, <laughs> that should be correct, uh, but it isn't uh, because uh, many uh, manufacturers, in fact, uh, are yeah well are doing their best to do uh, the CE marking on the correct way. But there is always uh, some uh, yeah let's say minor CE, and you cannot distinguish it from the from uh, outside. Uh, so we have also in, in our countries, countries or member states, let's say, uh, the so-called market surveillance. And that is the uh, authority that's looking at uh, to the bad products. But you cannot avoid that um, the CE marking sometimes is yeah, not telling the truth. I'm sorry to say that. And one of the things that, that I hear every now and then, and I, I think it's a misconception, but that people think that the CE mark means that the product is manufactured in the European Union. And indeed, it could be a misconception. Normally, it's the manufacturer that puts the CE mark on it. CE mark, by the way, is it's only an idea from the European Union, not a, not a bad idea, to make uh, the so-called trade barriers minimizing. So that means that the trade barriers are now at the member states not anymore. Uh, so you can sell the products everywhere in Europe. And based on the principle, you have to see mark a product from the beginning before entering on the market. Well, uh, the CE mark uh, could be that uh, it is uh, stamped on it in the US or Canada or New Zealand, Australia or even China, whatever. But when it's entering the European Union, the CE mark should be correct. And that means that then not a manufacturer in the first line is uh, uh, the, the one who is uh, at stake, but is also the importer. The importer is then the important one. Right, and is it a mandatory thing, the CE mark? Yes, mandatory. To which products does it apply? Well, it's uh, a lot of products, um, the products where the legislation is present, let's say. If there is no legislation on this uh, subject or product, there is no CE mark. Maybe there is another marking or something, but in general, if the product complies to the product regulation parts, then of course the CE marking is a valid marking. Right, but for, for example, sunglasses. Sunglasses fall under personal protective equipment and the PPE directive is a CE marking directive. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, but sunglasses, it depends on what the manufacturer thinks. You have sunglasses, they are for fun and nothing to help, only to look better, for instance. Now, those sunglasses are nothing. It, you, it can only uh, think about, um, let's say, general product safety devices. So the sunglasses should be um, uh, conforming uh, the product legislation, that there is no poisonous uh, substances in it, and so on. But when the sunglasses are under the PPE, that means they have a kind of protection for eyes, and then 
yeah, of course, you have to have a CE marking on it. Uh, a small manual how to do and to deal with this, of course. And uh, yeah, the manufacturer uh, has to do uh, yeah, some testing that it can see that the product conforms. Let's stick to these sunglasses because you're saying when it doesn't have protective function, then it's not, it doesn't fall under the PPE directive and, and it's not part of CE marking. But for example, when uh, the sunglasses are, they don't have a, a protective function, but they are intended for children, for example, I think then the toy directive applies, which is another CE di uh, directive. Yes, correct. The toys directive is very simple. If a product falls under a directive, also the manufacturer needs to address this, then pick out the directive the product is uh, fitted for, let's say, or suited. Uh, that means that the manufacturer has to uh, decide where the product is intended for, the use, the group or whatever people. And if the manufacturer sees that the intention is only for, for instance, children, uh, toys, if it's intended for PPE, PPE, it could be intended also both. Yeah, it depends on what the manufacturer is. I'll give you an example of this problem, what uh, is more technical than juridical. If you have, for instance, oh, let's about toys. If you have a Barbie doll, you know, doll. And a Barbie doll is, of course, for playing. But you have also Barbie dolls for exhibition. They have clothing in a variety of clothing, and they are only for showing off. Well, they are clearly intended not for playing. They are not sold in the shops. So this is clearly a non-toys directive issue. Right, clear, yeah. And I think, for example, machinery, so there's the machinery directive, which is a CE directive, uh, and applies to all kinds of machinery. But when machinery, for example, is intended for artists to use in, in performances, then it's excluded from the machinery directive. So, so meaning that um, you always need to consult a directive to see if your product is included or maybe it's excluded by that same directive. Yeah, that's correct. You have to, to check. Uh, so one of the obligations of the manufacturer is to check uh, if your product uh, falls within one or two or maybe three or four, whatever, uh, directives. And that is the product directives. You can find them on the internet, on the for European internet, EU space growth. And there you have an uh, overview of product directives. So then for the manufacturer, it's a, a job. Check if your uh, product falls under the definitions of this. And if yes, then you have to comply to that. Right, I'll include the link that you mentioned in the transcriptions of this podcast. But you're saying, so on that page of the European Union, there's a list of European directives. That's correct. Uh, and, and there's a listing uh, because you have to scroll down sometimes. And when I <laughs> explain to uh, other uh, persons where you can find it, they say, oh, well, there's nothing. Now, well, the scroll, there's a scroll a little bit downwards and then you, you have a list of um, directives. It's a list box. And there you can click on the directives. There are more than 60 for those directives, dependent on uh, the area you want. So for machinery, of course, machinery directive, but also dependent on the part of the machinery, there could be more directives applicable same time. 
Mm. So it's not always just one directive that uh, that may apply to your product. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you're saying there are maybe over sixty directives and regulations uh, listed there. Are are these all CE directives? No, but they are new approach directives. So there are more directives that are not CE directly related. For instance, if you have uh, transportable pressure equipment which is uh, those famous bottles you know for uh, helium, oxygen, nitrogen and so on. Uh, they have a so-called P mark, that is the, the, the P from the circle here, you know P3.14, yeah. Now that kind of marking is available for those transportable uh, pressure equipment. Uh, so you have also uh, the, the WEE, that means the Waste Electronical Electrical Equipment, and therefore you have the uh, wheelie bin. Well, it's not CE, but it's a wheelie bin. And there are several markings. Why does European uh, make a, a difference between CE directives and regulations and non-CE directives and regulations? There could be several reasons, uh, uh, political, uh, technical, I don't know. It's depending on the subject and what is the need for the regulation of the sectors. In, in fact, it started in uh, 1980, 1985, with this uh, new approach directives. They thought, uh, well, we have to uh, get rid of these trade barriers in the member states. And when you get rid of it, what to do, what to apply for legislation? So then we, uh, first it started with the low voltage directive and later on they said, well, if we have some new approach directive on a general level, uh, maybe we can have uh, a, a kind of mutual, let's say, uh, document and well, that one of them is the machinery directive, the PPE directive and so on. So if there's a need for a sector, they will do it, but it depends. Generally, there are sectors that are not regulated directly, most of the time then indirectly, or local regulations, that means local member states regulations are then there. But I think most of the legislation nowadays in the member states have more related higher level legislation that is coming straight from, let's say, Brussels or uh, at least Europe. Right, so actually you're saying the, how this has evolved as an historical background. And like in the 80s when they started with CE marking, the European Union or European Commission decided that certain products uh, need to be regulated a bit more than other products. So they started with certain product groups in order to, to get rid of trade barriers. Yeah, and it started from industry. So there was a huge lobby from industry. There are two names in familiar with this uh, lobby. That's Per Gilhammer from Volvo, I think, from Sweden, and Wisse Decker from Philips in the Netherlands. And they were wholeheartedly saying, well, we need to have regulations to get rid of this barrier trade. The idea behind it is, is quite simple. So when I have a an, an, an machine, or an, no, let's say a drilling machine, and I have to comply to the, the Dutch legislation at that time. I had to go to the, the Kima, for instance, yeah? and they uh, said, well, they certify my machine. And when I was going to the Germany, they said, no, 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 Kima, it's not okay. We have a VDE or an other marking or a geprüfte Sicherheit, the GS marking. Well, at the end, you had a lot of so-called notified bodies, a lot of certifications needed to get Europe entering. Uh, and that cost a lot of money. 
Well, the testing is not very different in those testing uh, houses or notified bodies. And that means that there's a burden from testing. And so get rid of this burden, because if the chemo is tested at once, why is it not uh, um, uh, valid for Germany or England or so on? Well, that needs to be addressed. That's why. It sounds like it was almost impossible for small and medium-sized enterprises in the before CE marketing was introduced to sell products Europe-wide. No, not impossible, but it cost you a lot of money. <laughs> and <laughs> that was a trade barrier, of course. And now I think this European model is mostly widespread all over the world. Do you think that this European model has inspired other countries to introduce a similar system? The similar system, yes, because I was also also involved from the European Union to go abroad and to say what it is, the machinery, EMC and other directives. And uh, what you see is they, they like the idea have a high level of regulations and then give the standardization and a kind of uh, building bricks. Uh, but the high level is clear. Uh, the machine should be safe, uh, the voltage, low voltage should be safe, etc. So this high level was already there and many countries uh, like that. So I think the European Union has here a unique selling product legislation. I fully agree. And you're mentioning that uh, getting rid of trade barriers is one of the advantages of CE marking. But isn't it all also a big advantage that you guarantee a certain level of safety for products when they comply with uh, the requirements? Of course. Still, there is a problem is uh, if you apply on the right way the CE marking and do the CE marking process correctly, that's no problem. But you have always a problem how to uh, check. Let's say I can put the CE marking on it, stamp on it, and I put my product on the market. And then, well, if the product is really bad and there are accidents, of course, I will be swept off the market with my whole company and the persons. But the problem is, how do you check generally all products on all situations? That will be an issue. Yeah, and I think in general, like putting the CE mark on on a product is an easy thing to do. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, but it's actually the last step in the CE marking process. So you only put the CE mark on the product when you know for sure that your product complies with the requirements. Yeah, and there is a funny story about it in in the past when the directive machinery directive was um, first, let's say, uh, applicable is in 1992. There was an exhibition on uh, agriculture machinery. At that time, there was a guy who said, Hey, guys, on the boot from the machinery, he said, You have not CE marked your machinery. Here is a sticker, put it on. So there was a guy with stickers at the exhibition uh, scene. And after all, there was also a labor inspection. And he said, Well, we have a nice A4 paper uh, which is standing and you can cross. CE marking present, yes, no let's say manual present, yes, no, and other remarks. So we get a, a, a situation that uh, people were putting CE stickers on it, and just 10 minutes later, the labor inspection came and said, oh, the CE marking is yes, do you have the manual? Maybe, so there was crossed yes or no, and suddenly we're gonna check next half year if you're okay. So this is a kind of hide and seek method, but that was 
<laughs> in the early beginnings. Right, and and the meetings are only the CMOC was present, but manual wasn't, the risk assessment wasn't, and everything was missing for the rest. Yes, of course. Then what means the CE label? Oh, well, I have the declaration of conformity. Oh, yeah, well, there's a piece of paper, you sign it, and no, no big deal. To summarize, so when you sign the declaration of conformity and put the CE marking on your product, you declare that your product meets the requirements as indicated in the European directives. That's correct. And you're not only responsible, but also accountable if something goes wrong. So your signature means a lot. When you have this declaration and you put your signature on on behalf of your firm or whatever, then you're liable when something is going wrong. You're responsible, liable, accountable. That means a lot. And people were just, oh, well, what did I sign? There, oh yeah, there should be a technical file. Wow, what is a technical file? So what we saw in many firms is a rollback of the situation, not getting in advance what is the legislation and how to implement it in the design process. And at the end, put a CE sticker on it. No, it was quite the reverse. We put a CE sticker on, okay, yeah, that means I have to sign something. I sign something, but what does it mean? And then it came clear to many people or many persons or many manufacturers wow there's a lot of more that is here at stake we have to design safe machines and not just check if the machine is safe not in the design it should be yeah yeah and then you, you get to the the process then where the c mark is like an integral part of the design process that's correct and that should be and we, we started uh, straight from from the beginning to tell people, please, it's not only a paper, it's a process in the design and you have to make a safe design. The funny thing is actually, um, I studied uh, industrial design engineering in uh, the University of Delft, which is quite technical. So you learn how to design products, mostly electrical equipment. But during my studies, I never had any college about CE marking. <laughs> people said okay when you follow standards when you get involved in the very beginning with everything that is regulated standards etc it kills the creativity of the design in the design process what, what do you think about that uh, i'm quite uh, the contrary uh, i think you need the boundaries you need to know the limits if you're in the desert every direction is okay so you're not creative People think that you would be creative with, uh, without any borders or limits. It's, it's wrong. If when you have borders, limits, then you can be creative. Know your limits. Know the limits of the legislation, know the limits of the user, whatever. And then you can be creative. Yeah, I agree. Another question uh, that crossed my mind. So uh, what we hear as well every now and then is that uh, we get some emails from companies that are importing a product from China, for example, and they ask us to, to do the user manual. And then they say, well, I ask them, okay, so which directors apply to the product? And then it appears they have a declaration of conformity and they say it's signed by our Chinese manufacturer. Do we need to put it on, on our name? <laughs> and what you know then for sure actually is that they have no clue about what responsibilities they have. Yeah, and the responsibilities of also the importer, because from China, there's a problem. Uh, you cannot go to China and say, hey, this is wrong, and 
uh, have them for court here in Europe. That's not done in our present times. So the one who imports this stuff, product, whatever, he is uh, liable, accountable, responsible, whatever, for this uh, product. Of course, in China, you can make a good product, no problem, but the importer is the one who is the responsible for that. So Chinese manufacturers, CE, signed by whatever, Beijing or whatever, no problem, but there is an importer or a responsible person in Europe and they have a technical file. And for instance, technical file in English or another, uh, let's say, member state language. So the importer is considered uh, to be the manufacturer? Yeah, de facto, they call it a manufacturer. De facto, they have the same uh, obligations. And you can also find it in a decision from the European Commission, how to deal with it and what are the obligations of an importer, of a distributor and a manufacturer. So the, the answer to the question, who should CE mark a product is? In fact, the manufacturer is the basis, uh, wherever he, he is or she is on earth. But then, if it's in Europe, is of course the manufacturer in Europe, but if it's outside Europe, then there is something like an importer or a responsible person that has to sign with it or at least is accountable for the technical file and so on. Yeah, this this responsible person is called the authorized representative, I think. Authorized representative, correct. What's the case with the UK at the moment? So when I import something from the UK, that's from outside the European Union, right? Well, okay, uh, yeah, 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 outside the European Union, but not outside the European economical area. Uh, they are still in the economical area. Uh, unless they um, make a so-called hard Brexit, whatever it is, and if they do it, then uh, maybe they become some bounded third country, they call it. So basically, they use the, the, the term third country that's from outside Europe. Well, they are not in the European Union. Uh, what they are going to do? They're going to the EFTA or going somewhere else? I don't know for sure. Don't better this. Whether a product is from England to Europe, of course, then the technical file should be on the European member states' grounds. Well, it's interesting because the notified bodies, they are losing their um, number. And so the, when a notified body in England makes a certification, it's not valid anymore. Let's say product uh, troubles uh, are with Brexit incorporated, let's say. We'll need to see how it evolves. So that's the UK. What about France? For example, when I import a product from France, a country within the European Union, is it then then it's not seen as, as import anymore? So it's trade within the European Union? Or actually, my question is, who is seen as the manufacturer when I import a product from France or from Ireland and I sell it on, on the Dutch market or German market? Well, uh, if the, the product was produced in the Netherlands, it's equal if it's produced in Ireland, France or Germany. The trade barrier is not anymore there. So we are one big country for this uh, part uh, regarding product safety. We are one together. Am I not seen as the distributor when I import a French car? 
and I I sell it on the the Dutch markets under the French brand. For cars, of course, there's automotive directives and so on. Uh, it's not on the machinery, but the, the same regulation uh, is applicable. When it's made in France, you can sell it on the European market. Uh, that means the Netherlands, that means Germany. It's, it's no trade barrier, in fact. But the product uh, should be then regulated. If there's a non-regulated product, of course, then you can face some trade barriers. Okay, let's say I'm importing a product uh, from outside the European Union, from China. Uh, there is a seam. The Chinese manufacturer already placed the CE mark on, on, on the product. Uh, I am the importer. So how do I check if the CE mark is valid? If the CE mark is correctly laid out, uh, well, that's in the directive, then of course the CE marking is as a mark, a valid mark. But then you have to, to check several other situations. Maybe you can check against some standards from the product. Uh, maybe it is valid that you can check it uh, against the legislation in general. But it depends on the product. So, yeah, it depends on product. It can be a toy, for example, that I import. But what happens as well is that companies import uh, product parts that they use in machinery or that they use in uh, electrical equipment. What do I need to do, for example, when I import uh, a small electronic component that I use in my electrical device? Okay, then still, uh, the manufacturer, the end manufacturer, is uh, responsible for his product. That is the same question all the time. But if you uh, pick parts out of China or out of everywhere, then the part, it depends on your uh, purchasing department or uh, let's say uh, a technical testing department if you have the right component. You import a resistor, a tiny electronic component. Now if the resistor is okay, no problem. But if the resistor uh, can burn by mistake and a component failure, yeah, who is responsible? Of course, the manufacturer who assembles this with this resistor. Let's say that I'm a manufacturer based in the European Union and I want to, to, to purchase some, some electrical components. Would be the first step that I source a Chinese supplier that at least says so that they can deliver components that comply with the European directives. The problem is that the component itself cannot directly comply to the directive on technical uh, base. Of course, electrical components do have a compliance within the ROS directive. Yeah, that means that there are no, let's say, foreign substances in it or substances that are not allowed. But if the, the substance is okay, and, and let's say, take talk about a resistor or a capacitor, it's okay, then you can use it. But there is no CE on it, but you're depending on the uh, buy-in stuff, uh, the testing, and to check if the rush uh, compliance is okay. Yeah, okay, sorry sorry to interrupt you, Paul, but for example, when I import a cable, and cables quite often have to comply with the EMC directive or even a low voltage directive. Uh, EMC depends, but low voltage can for sure if it's above 50 volts. And depending on the cable issue, we have the radio equipment directive, it could be from zero volts. So yeah, cables, but there is a standard also for the cables. Then I'm a European manufacturer. I'm importing cables from outside the European Union. So then I, and I want to make sure that the cables that I purchased, that they compl already comply 
with the European requirements. You can do two things in this way. You can check that the Chinese are complying. Well, you have to check, you have to have a quality assurance and so on. And you check if they comply. And if they comply, no big deal. They can print a CE mark on it. But if the cable is uh, not marked anyhow, uh, well, then you should be aware as a manufacturer, be prepared. This is a non-marked issue. It could be that uh, the specification is okay, but why should you go along with non-marked cables and give yourself an extra uh, responsibility for that? Exactly. Another question regarding the CE marking. You often hear that CE marking is self-certification. Is that correct? Yeah, but the terminology is a little bit degraded. Of course, in the design process, let's say almost every machine or every product, to speak, has to be designed by a manufacturer. And you do it by yourself. And that means that when there is not a notified body involved at the end or somewhere halfway, dependent on the product, you have to do it yourself. And I think the best way is to do it all the way yourself because you're responsible in the end. Not a notified body, not a third party, you're responsible as a manufacturer. So you have to do it yourself. And the self-certification was a little bit a terminology. So when you have a notified body involved, then the certification is valid and self-certification is not valid. Self-certification is like trusting on blue eyes. And you know, in the USA, we have the UL certification and there's a third party. There's always there is a third party with the product involved. And yeah, with self-certification, no third party involved. And that's the idea in Europe to check afterwards if the product is okay, mark surveillance authority. But you can also do it before it's entering the market. It depends what you choose. And it depends how many authority you have to deal with it. Yeah, and actually you're saying that CE marking is always self-certification. And in some cases you need additional notified body testing. For Yeah, but uh, there are some cases that the notified body involvement is very heavily. So it's not at the end a, a, a type test, for instance, but it could be also a design check. For instance, uh, at lifts and the cabins of lifts, there's really they, the notified body is also checking your quality system, for instance, uh, also the design drawings. Uh, that can be quite deep involvement. Can you explain a bit more what a notified body is and when you need a notified body? It is in the directive. Uh, if we take the machinery directive as an example, uh, there is an, an, an Annex 4 and they tell uh, in the Annex 4, which machine related parts or whatever is in the Annex itself. There are pointed several machines that need the assistance or at least involvement of a notified body. It is a list, but let's be honest, it's 95% of all machinery is self-certification. So in this Annex 4, only uh, a few product-related uh, machinery like uh, a circular saw, like uh, a press brake with hand uh, um, uh, input. Yeah, and, uh, we, we did a, a podcast episode about medical devices a few weeks ago. And uh, for example, I think we discussed there that class one medical devices don't require notified body testing, but other classes do require no bow testing. 
So yeah, the manufacturer is in fact the person, the one who says this machine is uh, complying to the directive or directives and not a notified body. They are more or less involved to see, for instance, uh, noise emission uh, measurements, that the measurement is done okay and that the measurement is done on the same way so that the measurement is reproducible in Germany and France and so on. But the notified body keeps that kind of level uh, uh, confidence in Europe. Is the notified body the same as a testing institute or is there a difference between a testing institute and a NOVO? Yeah, it, it could be that the NOVO can do testing, uh, but the testing uh, is not likely a NOVO, uh, depends. But testing, uh, if you have uh, test equipment, you, you can be a testing institute because you know how to test and how to test EMC, low voltage and so on. And you can have this as a third party uh, give a test result, a result that is independent. So test is okay, but a notified body, the, if they do tests, that, then the test is also done uh, the same way, let's say as a test house, but they can have this responsibility uh, what is also the regulation and obligation in the regulation. Mm. So, for example, a TÜV, is, is TÜV a notified body for non in certain areas? Yeah, a notified body in certain areas. And an SGS? Yeah, but you can look it up uh, in the uh, European site. The site is that called Adnendo, but uh, that is a site for uh, notified bodies that are uh, recognized in Europe. But also there are recognitions in America, Australia and so on. But those recognitions are bound to a certain product uh, like uh, EMC testing. It's okay, but certain products they can also check or test. Let's say I have a, a certain product, then if TÜV or SGS is accredited to be a notified body for that product, they can be the notified body for that product. So they can do certain testing or the process checks for that product but but i can also go to them and approach them to be not as a notified body but just to do for example emc testing or lvd testing yeah uh, it's correct okay thanks hey uh, paul so that's a lot of information about ce in general but what i like about ce marking is the structured process so it looks like really complicated but the process to get to ce marking you can boil it down to to six steps for all kinds of products uh, which makes it uh, well don't want to say easy, but at least it's structured. So before we dive into the details, can you describe briefly how the CE marking process looks like? Well, you mentioned uh, the six steps, yeah? And of course it looks easy uh, and it is, sounds easy, but sometimes it's not easy. But the six steps are in generally step one, where do, uh, can I find the directives, what are the applicable directives or let's say applicable legislation and standards. Uh, second is check the requirements. Third step is check your conformity. Do you need an, an verified body, yes or no? Most times no, but okay. And then you have a uh, kind of uh, testing. Then the step five, assemble a technical file. And then the last step is uh, draw up the declaration of conformity and uh, put the C uh, label on it. That's the six steps. And there are also uh, um, made visible 
in the EU site eu.growth on the CE market. You can find it as a manufacturer. Yeah, and, and, and those steps apply to all, all, all products, whether, regardless whether it's a medical device, a toy, a machinery, a PPE, etc. Yeah, so the steps are generally uh, applicable to all products, but <laughs> dependent on, on, on the legislative part or the product, those steps could be involve a lot of work sometimes. Let's say I'm a company located within the European Union and I want to import face masks from China. <laughs> yeah, that's an actual one. Well, if you want to do it, then the face masks uh, needs to be tested by the notified body because their PPE involves categories and so on. Let's start at step one. So I want to import a face mask. And step one, I think you said, is identifying the applicable directives and standards. No, 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 no. wait a minute. You said import. The manufacturer does the six steps. Right. So the manufacturer, the Chinese manufacturer has to check what is the applicable directives in Europe first. Then they have to check the requirements for this face marks in particular, the standards. And if they apply this well, they have also a notified body attached to it, uh, who is checking that, and then the testing. And now the importer, if this, all the steps are done properly, the importer says, okay, this one is marked, I can import it, um, and where's the technical file, and so on. And he has seen this, and then he can import it. Now you're assuming that the Chinese manufacturer started with step one in their design process. But let, let's say that the, that the product already is manufactured, and I, just, I approach a, a Chinese manufacturer, I'm ordering a batch of... of PPE and I want to sell them on the European market. So I need to compile my technical file. And I think step one is to identify the directives or is this not a good example? Yeah, you can do, but the, the idea is now you um, reverse engineer the situation. Yeah, but that's, that, that is what happens in daily practice quite often. Quite, yeah, okay, agree, it's, uh, quite often. But then if you have to check if the product complies, and of course, the, Take step one. What is the directive? Now, well, this is an easy one for this uh, this face mask. This is a PPE, yeah. So that means point one is down. There is a standard for it. Also, yeah, there's no problem. You can find it. But so there are directives and there are standards. It's it's clear to me, but maybe some people don't know the difference between st standards and directives. Well, the uh, the directive is of course uh, the one yeah, that's an obligatory part. The standards are more voluntary, but if you fill in, uh, let's say if you apply the standard correctly, then you have a so-called presumption of conformity. That means that applying the standard on the right way gives you that you comply to the directive. It creates the assumption of conformity. Yeah, the presumption of conformity, which is a juridical term, and you can discuss lengthy about it. But the idea is that if a standard is technical, uh, uh, let's say, it gives you the technical basis on the present state of the art of a face mask. And if you comply to those technical issues in the standard, then you're, let's say, comply to the directive. So the standard becomes an important part, but not the end. Right. So like the personal protective equipment directive applies to all kinds of PPE. And then there is most likely specific standard for face masks, giving really detailed technical requirements on 
well on, on the, the the design requirements on the product but also maybe the instructions the testing the way the product needs to be tested etc by the way those standards now particularly face masks are free uh, because of the European Union and the COVID problems, they said those standards are now free. From every institute, you can uh, get this for free. It's not no normal, but you have to pay for standards because it is a, a private uh, enterprises they are. So the standard you can see, and then it's an easy one. If I import face masks, then I can check against the standard if this face mask is okay. They are for free to send, as you're saying. So does it mean that they, uh, I can download them from the website of the European Union? Or where, where can I find directives and where can I find standards in general? Yeah, the directives you can download, of course, free in, in the languages of the EU member states. And that is on the EU Space Growth uh, site. And if you dig a little bit deeper, there is also uh, one uh, that is special for this particular PPE during this COVID uh, situation, that those uh, standards are now released from the Standardization Institute as free standards. So if you go to the Dutch Standardization Institute or the German, and you ask for those specific, uh, specific standards, I think they only ask your uh, proper email address and so on, but then you can download it for free. But it's only restricted to uh, several standards relating to PPE uh, for this time. And now let's say I've downloaded the directives, I've downloaded the standards that apply to my product, this, this face mask, and in this case, what's next? So step two, you mentioned that you have to determine the requirements that apply to the product. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. But that means that the PPE requirements, now you can take the standards and see what those requirements mean. So there are filled-in requirements for a particular case, in this case, this face mask. So your PPE general uh, technical regulations, or uh, that's in the annex, you can pinpoint them into the standards and say, okay, in the standard, what do I have to do? I have to do some tests uh, for a face mask, then you have to pick the standard and find the right requirements. But that is an easy one. So your requirements are there. And in our example, we had the reverse engineering. So then it's the only way to go down is pick the standard and check if the thing is according to the standard. Yeah, okay. And then do all the requirements for, uh, in the standard apply or are they all relevant for that product? Or is that something that you need to do as well? What you're asking now is the standard way. Uh, you check always the scope. That means if your face mask fits in the scope, of this uh, standard, that's the first check, of course. And if it is, in this case, in this example, then, okay, this standard is applicable for face masks. And then, of course, your specific face mask could be a little bit different uh, from the scope. Okay, then you have to check again to the directive if something should be added or minimized or I don't know. Yeah, or is obsolete. So in, in those cases, maybe certain sections do not apply. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually step two is is reading and understanding the standards. That's correct. It's not reading, it's reading, studying 
understanding. <laughs> okay, cheers. Um, all right, so we've determined the requirements. Um, then we go to step three. That's determining the route of conformity. Is that correct? Yeah, and that means that uh, a certain PPE has to go to a certain notified body, and the notified body could be in the EU. A notified body could also be an agency in China that's under the uh, jurisdiction of the EU. Uh, there are certain, uh, well, you mentioned, uh, for instance, you mentioned earlier the TÜV, but SES, uh, DECRA, uh, name it. Each notified body has some agency in Asia, and they um, do the checking uh, under their umbrella. So with determining the route to conformity, uh, actually uh, is meant that you have to identify if you need notified body testing or if you are allowed to do the testing yourself. Yeah, and the notified bodies, by the way, they have a number, you can find it on the internet, and then you can see if this notified body is the right notified body to do these checks. Because for personal protective equipment, uh, there are certain notified bodies that are allowed to or accredited to do PPE testing. Correct, yeah. But there are also notified bodies who have no accreditation for those testing. And if, if you have no accreditation, you're not allowed. You can put a number on it, but it is invalid. It is fraud. Yeah. And a notified body testing is one route to conformity. What, what are other uh, routes to conformity? Uh, well, that is the so-called self-certification, but in this case, I don't know for sure if the self-certification is appropriate. But if the self-certification is okay, depending on the face mask and what, ex what exactly does the mask do. So you have FPPE, PPE, and so on, depending on that. If the most stringent uh, regulation is applicable, then you have need a notified body. Otherwise, you can do testing or even test at your own uh, premises. That means you can do testing in China. But then you have, of course, you need to do the, the right test equipment. And there you can challenge this, this uh, <laughs> batches of um, uh, face masks because have they undergone the right uh, process in the manufacturing plant in China? I don't know. Yeah, clear. And for example, when we're talking about face masks now, but for example, when we use a toy as an example, then you don't need to know it for the body and you are allowed to do the testing yourself. You can do it on your own premises, but then you need to have, for example, the right testing equipment to test on flammability or to test its mechanical properties. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, those testing and the requirements for those testing, they are in IEC standards, for instance, or ISO standards, depending on what testing equipment. And the testing equipment itself uh, needs to be uh, qualified for that. So you can, from standardization point of view, see a lot of qualification standards for processes, for equipment. And, and I think we already moved forward to step four, which is the actual testing. So how do you know uh, what testing is needed? Is, is it correct that the directive gives requirements on a product and for certain requirements you need testing in order to prove if your product meets, meets that requirement? You can easily say uh, each requirement needs some kind of testing. Either it's visible, it is there. A safeguarding. What to test on the safeguarding? lean on it, it doesn't bend. Sharp, sharp edges. Yeah, for instance, but it is easily tested uh, by, put your, <laughs> don't do it, but put your finger on it or a piece of paper or whatever, you can see the sharpness. 
And of course, this is visible, but does it need the word testing? We think the word testing is then that you have a test uh, apparatus like an, a volt measurement uh, apparatus or DC current uh, measurement or something like that, uh, what you cannot see and make it visible. But each requirement has some kind of, let's say, test. It's there, visible, it's a visible test. And then for example, EMC, for EMC testing, you can follow a standard, you can follow a procedure in order to make sure that your, your product complies. And the test reports or the result of that testing is will be part of your technical file, which is actually the proof that your product complies to that requirement. But, but then also like a photo of a product and showing that there are no sharp edges for edges for example can be also your evidence and, and be part of your technical file yeah a photograph of no sharp edges is is a little bit off the edge let's say <laughs> because you cannot see from a photograph how sharp it is in practice <laughs> but uh, yeah the, the idea what you uh, is correct so let's take a small step back. So when I'm, I'm analyzing, studying on the requirements in step two, then actually what I do is per requirement, there are like loads of requirements in the directs per requirement, I decide whether it is myself or whether it's it's regulated already, what kind of testing or route to conformity I need. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the, those steps are in the directive, but also in standards are some routes or testing steps to be taken depends on the directive and the standards and it's not generally that i say one route is okay there are several all clear yeah and then um let's go let's move forward to step five then i have my testing reports i have all kinds of evidence uh then in step five i need to compile my technical file yeah that is a little bit tricky because it's it's put in step five uh, well if you start at step five to collect the data and to put in a technical file you need to go through all, all the previous steps yeah step one should be uh, make a technical file yeah exactly yeah and 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 of course if you identify the applicable uh, regulation or standards then you put in the technical file this is what i found on that and this is machinery because of this or this is product toys because of this so you, you, your file is starting a little bit earlier than at step five. And what, what else should be in, in your technical file? How, how do I know what should be in the technical file for my face mask, for a toy, for, for a medical device, construction product, etc.? Well, that's also in the directive. In the directive itself, this, uh, the, the, there are the conformity routes, but also what is needed in the technical file. You make a technical file, uh, in order to, to, let's say, reflect that you've done the right documentation process and the right things uh, to make the thing safe or make it safe CE marking. But uh, in fact, the market surveillance authority can ask you to hand over part or a certain part of the technical file. So the technical file is not that you make for others. You do it for yourself and authorities. Okay, all clear. And only when you have your technical file ready, which can be seen as the evidence that your product complies, then in step six you can put the C-mark on your product and draft the declaration of conformity. Yeah, and that, that is also part of this technical file. So to be precise, the parts that handed over to, the, let's say, outside the manufacturer, that is the part of the technical file regarding the manual. You have to have a copy 
in the technical file and the declaration of conformity either you have to have a copy or the declaration conformity put in the manual depending on the product itself and the CE marking of course uh, that is on the product so there are a few items of the technical file that are copied or in the technical file so the technical file is at the premises of the manufacturer at least in the EU and yeah let's say has a copy of the technical file Thank you, Paul. I think we've discussed so many things and I hope we proved a clear overview of the process and what you should do to make sure that your product complies. Thanks again for being an awesome guest. I would like to thank the thousands of listeners that follow my show and I'd like you to listen to this show next week and all weeks that will follow as well. What have you got to lose? You are on your way to create happier and safer users. And I invite you to email me with your queries or just to say hi. Or maybe you want to be in the show. So continue listening or write that email right now or you won't be safe anymore. Only joking of course.